Today on the AABIP podcast, we are privileged to host two very special guests, Dr. Rob Halifax from the Oxford Center of Respiratory Medicine and Dr. Simon Brown from the University of Western Australia. Two true experts in the topic we are going to discuss today, ambulatory management of primary spontaneous pneumothorax. Rob and Simon, thank you so much for joining us today on the AABIP podcast. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, so before we do get started, Rob, do you have any relevant conflicts of interest to disclose? No, no conflicts for me. And what about you, Simon? Uh, no conflicts. Perfect. Thank you. Okay, Rob, so let's get started with you. So ambulatory management is targeted to patients with primary spontaneous pneumothorax. However, the whole concept of a pneumothorax being primary, that is in someone with a normal lung, is controversial. We know that some of these patients may have blebs or bullae or emphysema-like changes, which may not be detected on a chest X-ray. Smokers may have respiratory bronchiolitis-like changes on the CT scan, and many patients have higher expression of MMP. So Rob, how do you go about determining that a pneumothorax is truly primary? I mean, do you order CT scans on all your patients? And if you do so, uh, do you do so when the lung has fully expanded? Uh, well, I think you're starting with the big questions. I think that's a very good question. I think it is still is controversial. I do agree that the idea that primary pneumothorax have entirely normal lungs is a bit outdated. If you think about it, there must be something abnormal within the lung parenchymal at the, at the pleural surface to allow air to leak out. I think it just historically it's meant that we haven't been able to identify a well-known other lung disease that we would call secondary, such as COPD with emphysema or lung fibrosis. But if you look at the incidence, there is a bimodal peak. So there is certainly a peak of incidence in people in their 30s and then a secondary peak in people over 65. And particularly in the over 65s, there's the ones with the known lung diseases that we, we've already been diagnosed. It's this younger group without the pre-classified lung diseases that we tend to call primaries and I think we, we can still call them that as such. I think that there is a separate physiology and etiology which still needs to be unpicked in these groups. It essentially just means that we, they haven't been diagnosed with a well-classified lung disease. Mm -hmm. So I think what we don't do, or certainly at the outset before you've treated them, is do a CT scan to say, well, there's lots of emphysema, so this is a secondary, so I'll manage them differently. I would certainly look at the patient in front of you if it's a 20 or 30 year old otherwise fit person, even if they've been a smoker, you could say, well, actually we could consider these for ambulatory management. Certainly in, in our study, the RAMP study, we enrolled quite a few smokers. We had a, an upper limit of 20 pack years, but most of the patients were, were less than 40. So that that had to be a good going smoker to reach that limit. And we also had a significant number of marijuana smokers as well. And when you look at the the pre-specified subgroup analyses of the primary outcome, even if you were a current or former smoker of tobacco or marijuana, you did actually did equally well in terms of the primary outcome in either of those groups. So I don't think we need to automatically classify some people based on blebs or bullar emphysema on a CT scan as secondary in, in this patient group. Whether we do CT scans on everybody afterwards, I think is, again, another slightly controversial topic. At the moment, I don't think we do. Certainly, I don't yet, because I don't quite know what finding some blebs on a CT scan means for that patient. So I think once we've got a better predictor of which of those patients are going to recur, we might allow ourselves a better algorithm that might include a CT scan. 
to try and determine who, for example, might go on to surgery, which I think we'll talk about later. The patients I do do a, a CT scan on, though, are those patients with a strong family history or indeed some younger female, particularly non-smoking females, because it, we know the instance is lower in, in females. And what you don't want to miss is a, is a first presentation of, of a cystic lung disease such as LAM. So I think those are the people I do consider CT scans on. Perfect. Thank you. So in our practice, we intervene upon a pneumothorax when it is large. The ACCP guidelines use an apex to cupola distance of greater than three centimeters to classify a pneumothorax as large, while the BTS guidelines use an interpleural distance at the level of the hilum of more than two centimeters. So Simon, in the PSP trial, you decided to use the Collins method to calculate the size of the pneumothorax. Is this what you use in your day-to-day practice? Uh, no, we don't. We chose the Collins method uh, as the best possible assessment of pneumothorax size just to characterise the study participants um, rather than as a practice guide. And I guess it, it turned out that radiological size didn't really seem to be an important uh, factor in determining outcome in terms of success of conservative management um, and physiological tolerance seemed to be more important rather than pneumothorax size. So, uh, no, we, we don't use the Collins method routinely in, in ED practice. Mm-hmm. And then when you do decide to intervene, do you follow the BTS way of needle aspiration up to two and a half liters as your first approach or you directly place a small bore chest tube? No, we, um, in the study, we went straight to a small bore a chest tube for a couple of reasons. Um, the first one is when we started piloting the protocol, uh, we, we expected quite a few participating sites to be using needle aspiration, but it turned out that um, none of our, our sites actually did that. Um, so I think as needle aspiration is quite inconvenient, takes a fair bit of time sitting at the bedside virtually. With, with the advent of those really soft, small bore and easy, comfortable to insert chest drains, people have virtually stopped doing, or had virtually stopped doing aspiration. Um, and so we... For the study protocol, we also thought it was good to minimise procedures, so we didn't want to tell people to do a procedure they didn't normally do and then go back in and do another procedure if that failed. So we therefore used the uh, small bore test tube to simulate aspiration by just having one hour of drainage. Um, and then if that wasn't successful, we just use the same drain to uh, keep on draining the pneumothorax and admit the patient. Perfect. Thank you. Ambulatory management of a pneumothorax is not a new concept. Um, It's just one that has newly acquired quality evidence supporting its practice, courtesy the recent RAMP trial. Uh, The trial showed that in patients with a large non-tension primary spontaneous pneumothorax, ambulatory management can reduce total hospitalization days at day 30. Uh, Zero versus four days in the ambulatory group managed with a plural vent device by Rocket Medical compared to standard of care group. So only 14 patients in the ambulatory group suffered adverse events needing um, unplanned hospitalizations. So Rob, can you please elaborate for us as to which patients with a primary spontaneous pneumothorax uh, do you consider ambulatory management? Yes, thanks for your comments. So for the RAMP study, the inclusion criteria was obviously the patient willing to be managed in that way, understanding what it meant in terms of the fact that they had to come back for follow-up, they'd have someone responsible at home that could bring them in and were able to re-attend for follow-up. And essentially that was it. So any, what we classify as primary pneumothorax could be considered for this uh, in those circumstances. What we didn't want to do is put a, a device into someone who then go away and we thought wouldn't come back again. 
So, and I think that does apply to most of our patients and certainly that's what we would be rolling out in our centre here. So I think the inclusion criteria of who this would be applicable to is pretty wide. And just to clarify, this could, this could be their second episode, right? This did not have to be their first episode. Absolutely. We wanted this to be a pragmatic study of how do we manage anyone who turns up at the front door with a pneumothorax. It doesn't matter if it's their first or their sixth episode. Perfect. Thank you for that clarification. So ambulatory management is feasible for select patients who are likely to be reliable with follow-up. Importantly, though, in operational systems with the capacity for close follow-up. What about doing nothing, though? You know, so the PSP trial addressed this very question, comparing conservative management to intervention with a chest tube in patients with their first episode of a primary spontaneous pneumothorax. And patients were included if they had a pneumothorax size greater than 32% as calculated by the Collins method. Uh, this trial looked at a primary out- outcome of complete radiological resolution of a pneumothorax at eight weeks, which was achieved in 94% of the patients in the conservative group. Now, more patients in the intervention group had adverse events, uh, which was expected, 49 versus 16, and 15% of those in the conservative group eventually needed an intervention. So, Simon, the you know, monetary benefit of you know, ambulatory and conservative management is intuitive. Is there a physiological rationale to doing nothing? Yeah, we, we thought so, um, hence, I guess, the reason for doing the study. Um, in our experience, the majority of spontaneous pneumothoraxes are, are well tolerated in patients with um, underlying normal lungs and probably in a number of patients with damaged lungs as well. So if we leave it alone, the pneumothorax just gradually resolves while the defect heals. Um, but if we dive in and remove the pneumothorax, then you generate a negative intrapleural pressure, which perpetuates the air movement uh, from the lung through the defect into the pleural space. And one of our hypotheses was, this, was that this prevents healing. Um, and so we see patients undergoing prolonged drainage with pneumothoraxes failing to heal. So I think there's a good, I suppose, pathophysiological rationale for, for not draining uh, if it's tolerated by the patient. It was pretty clear in our study that uh, if you do intervene, then you have a, a large number of patients who have prolonged drainage. But uh, with uh, conservative management, uh, patients, by and large, uh, do very well and just gradually, you know, the, the lung gradually reinflates. Mm-hmm. So it's important for the patients. I mean, our 12-month, the, the reason we studied uh, primary pneumothorax, so sorry, first episode pneumothorax uh, in this case is we didn't want to contaminate the results with people who had recurrent pneumothoraxes just to try and get a bit of a comparison of this, you know, whether there was a benefit from, from having a conservative approach. And, um, you know, we had a 12-month recurrence rate that was reduced to half uh, with 8.8% of the conservative group, whereas if you look at, you know, the two arms of Rob's study, you look at the recurrence rates for 24 and 28% of the two arms. So I think pretty clear message looking across a number of studies that you intervene, uh, you have a higher rate of prolonged drainage and also higher rates of recurrence. So I think, you know, taken all up, there is a good rationale for, and yeah, if it's tolerated by patients and if you can do it safely uh, for having a conservative approach and doing nothing. Absolutely. So, I mean, conservative management clearly is not for everyone. I mean, many patients screened in your study eventually were not enrolled, right? So could well, you elaborate for us uh, as to out of the setting, not in the setting of the study, but in your practice, how do you select patients for conservative management versus ambulatory management, say with the Heimlich versus chest tube placement? Yeah, we'll just go back to the study with the exclusion criteria. It's interesting. One of our first 
our early submissions, we had quite a detailed uh, summary of, of the exclusions, which seemed to have fallen off during the editing process. Uh, people weren't interested in the detailed breakdown. Um, <laughs> just one of those things that happens. Um, so we had 200 or 2,300 exclusions. Um, so a third, 760 of those, because the pneumothoraxes were so small. So we screened a lot of patients, but um, you know, a majority or a third were, were too small. Another third had previous pneumothoraxes. And as I mentioned before, we'd excluded those simply because we didn't want to contaminate the results looking at that hypothesis about lung healing. Um, another you know, 14%, 330 were secondary pneumothoraxes from trauma. Uh, and 281 were eligible, we didn't want to participate. Um, and 110 weren't referred for reasons we couldn't work out. So we, we found them in our, in our screening logs, but we couldn't work out why they weren't, uh, why they weren't enrolled. Okay. There were 70 of those had physiological compromise, uh, mainly hypoxia and were excluded. And that's an important one. I think they're the, those, those 70 cases are the important ones. So practically for conservative management, uh, we're obviously happy with a small pneumothorax. I think that's consistent with what uh, people do anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a large pneumothorax, even if it's complete, and, and a point I'd make is that metastinal deviation doesn't mean tension. It's just the elastic recoil of the other lung. And we saw a number of people with you know, what people would call radiological tension, but it's really they're, they're very comfortable, they're young, fit, healthy, very comfortable despite metastinal deviation, and their um, uh, pneumothoraxes would resolve with conservative treatment as well. But the key was that there was no physiological compromise. So for us, first of all, no physiological compromise, no hypoxia, progressive tachycardia, hypotension. They're stable after a period of observation. And practically from an emergency department perspective, you don't just say four hours because you don't want to send someone home at 2 o'clock in the morning uh, and have something happen overnight when they don't have help. So, you know, at least four hours, maybe overnight if they present late in the day, um, we also found that for large pneumothoraxes, we'd keep them in our emergency observation wards for up to 24 hours because we're so paranoid about sending someone home with a huge pneumothorax until we got used to the concept. Um, and the final point is that they're safely followed up. So they have to have a good understanding, good social supports, um, really understand what you're trying to achieve, uh, easy access to emergency care. So, you know, in Australia, we're not going to send someone you know, two hours out into the country for conservative management. We need to make sure they've got uh, easy access to help if their symptoms uh, get worse. And when we look at the cases that failed, um, the, they're usually many, many hours or days afterwards. We, we, we found that physiological compromise declares itself very early, usually at presentation. Uh, a very small number of people um, will not tolerate uh, under observation and then you intervene. I think we had two that were converted within five hours, but the majority of conversions were much later. Perfect. Thank you so much, Simon. Can I just add a, add a comment on that as well? Because uh, I, I do agree. I think when you don't need to intervene, you shouldn't. And I think there has been already been provision within the BTS guidelines to say, even if it's large by the criteria of the measurement at the hilum, if they're minimally symptomatic, you can leave them alone. And I think that certainly has been our practice in, in some cases. And I think that probably is shifting a little bit more after having read the Australian study, but I, I do think we do need to be careful to say you know, who who should we be sending home because I, I do agree that they've done well in in the study that uh, that Simon's presented. But the patient groups are, seem to be slightly different when you look in a bit more detail between the two studies. So uh, the the pain symptom score, which I think is the main reason that people would want to intervene, 
were generally lower in the Australian study than ours. So the score out of 10 was a two out of 10 in the Australian study, where ours was more like four or five in both pain and breathlessness. And we were taking all comers, including up, up to and including 20 pack year smoking history, which was actually quite representative of, of the people that attend in the UK at least. And so our, our average pack year history was eight uh, in one arm and seven in the other compared to only one and, and zero in the Australian study. So I think people mm-hmm. listening to the podcast need to have a think about what's your patient group in front of you? Is it, is it someone who's had one before? Are they a bit of a smoker? And how symptomatic are they? And I think what we need to decide is, you know, are you going to be able to tolerate those symptoms for the next few weeks while it slowly resolves on its own? Or do we think we need to intervene at this stage? Yeah, Robert, I, I think that's an important point because we, and going back to the exclusions, um, we found you know, a number of people, uh, overall our study enrollees were quite well-educated, well-informed, they, were, they consented to the study. Um, we did have a group of people that were hard to enrol uh, and some of our more enthusiastic sites uh, included some people who um, uh, were struggling a bit, I suppose, from a social perspective, or heavy smokers and, and didn't really do well with the study protocol. And so, yeah, it is important to look at the patient in front of you. And I think there's no doubt that uh, we had quite a, a well-motivated group of patients in our study uh, all up. Perfect. Thank you so much, both of you, for clarifying that. So let's say we do decide to, you know, intervene and we place this chest tube. So, Rob, do you initially place all your chest tubes to water seal? And uh, when do you decide to use suction? Yes, another area of controversy. I think uh, the, yeah, the ambulatory management withstanding, yes, if they have a chest tube in the UK, you get placed onto underwater seal. And that's obviously looking, you can then look to see what, whether it's still bubbling with bubbles coming through the water. I do often get asked this question about suction. At the moment, we don't routinely put patients on suction. We wait and see whether the lung is going to re-expand itself. And I think placing patients on suction, you need to sort of practically think about what you're trying to achieve. And I think if you're in the situation where you have someone with an enlarging pneumothorax or subcutaneous emphysema where the air is leaking into the chest wall, then essentially that means your current chest drain is not coping with the air leak from that's coming out of the lung and you need to withdraw more air than you currently are. One of the ways of doing that is putting that drain on suction. So you're trying to draw more air out to stop it going either into the skin or enlarging the pneumothorax. Another way of doing it is to place a large bore chest drain, which can, again has a larger capacity for, for the airflow. In terms of routine use of suction, it's certainly not been proven in primary pneumothorax. There was a small underpowered study which was stopped early a few years ago which didn't show a difference but it wasn't fully recruited to and most of the data that people use in terms of suction are extrapolated from surgical trials which are usually post lobectomy or post wedge resections and I think this is a different population so I guess when I use it this isn't particularly evidence-based but essentially if your patient's still got an ongoing air leak uh, towards the day four or five and you're thinking about referring to the surgeons that's when you might consider suction almost a bit of a, well, let's try it and see, which isn't, as I say, it isn't very evidence-based. But while you're waiting for a consideration of surgery, I think it's reasonable to try it. Perfect. Simon, what about you? I mean, is there ever an indication to put a large bore chest tube? Well, I guess from an emergency medicine perspective, our idea of large bore is a 32 French. Uh, and I'd say no, except for major chest trauma. I mean, that said, we've had occasional uh, in-hospital retrievals over the years of bronchocleural fistulas where we... Um, seem to be pushing 
a whole lot of air in, which comes out the chest tube as fast as it goes down the uh, ETT. So I guess there's always going to be an exception to the rule, but I think in ED practice the answer is no, unless there's a major trauma. Perfect. So uh, we all know that up to a third of patients with primary spontaneous pneumothorax will suffer from a recurrence, most of them within the first year. While patients with a second episode, patients who've had a contralateral pneumothorax, a synchronous bilateral pneumothorax, hemoneumothorax, or those patients with a profession that puts them at a risk for recurrence, or some all those patients who have a persistent air leak. Uh, these patients are universally considered for thoracoscopic pleurodesis with or without stapling or ligation of bullet. Uh, but there is an argument to you know, even offer surgical intervention to select patients at the time of their first episode. Uh, Rob, is this something you consider in your practice based on discussions with patients? So uh, the question is, you know, do you do surgery at first episode? I guess is, if your aim is to reduce all of your recurrences, then the answer is yes. So if that's bullectomy and some form of pleurodesis does re will reduce your recurrence down to 1% or 2% compared to 30-odd percent in patients that you don't intervene on. But at the moment, we don't know which patients are going to be the ones that recur, so we don't know who to target. So if you operated on everybody, you might be operating on 70% of patients that would never have another pneumothorax so you're unnecessarily operating on people which at the moment I, I, I don't feel justified in doing so I think at the moment we need a better predictive model to say who are those patients that are going to recur the presence of blebs on a CT scan might be a part of that but at the moment I don't think that's enough I think we need more data on, a, on an individual basis to be able to give them more information about what their personal risk of recurrence is before we go ahead and say yeah, let's go for surgery. Mm -hmm. Now, let me give you an example. Let's say we have a patient who frequently takes cross-country business flights, um, maybe uh, once every week. Is that a patient you would consider offering surgery in your practice? I think none of this is black and white, isn't it? I think it's all a course, case yeah. discussion, mm -hmm. discussion with the patient. So it's all about risks and benefits, isn't it? So uh, if you were to have a pneumothorax on the flight, certainly on a long-haul flight it could be dangerous with a change in cabin pressures and often the patients who've had a few what their worry is if they go on a holiday and they're they're stuck in in another country when they have a pneumothorax there and they can't fly home again many times soon so I think it's a in that particular case you need to say well what's the risk for this patient that they have a pneumothorax while they're on a business trip the other side of the country are they going to get stuck there for a few weeks until it heals and that and they can certainly have a discussion with the surgeons then and I wouldn't I wouldn't ever dissuade anyone from having a discussion about it. And, but I think in other cases with patients who are not making lots of long-haul trips or, or other risks, then I think you need to wait and see whether they have a second recurrence. Perfect. Thank you. Uh, we just mentioned about persistent air leak obviously being a, an indication to refer to surgery. On those lines, I've read your paper using digital drainage systems to predict those patients who may end up having a persistent or longer air leak. Uh, could you tell us more about whether the Topaz system is something you routinely use? And if yes, how do you use it? Topaz is a digital suction device. And essentially what it does is it accurately measures airflow and can provide suction as well if you need it. So what i done in my paper, which you referred to, was look at the first 60 or so ramp patients where we measured what the airflow was alongside their ambulatory treatment or conservative treatment, may need to see if we could 
measure something physiologically on, on day one or two that would predict who are those patients that by the end of the week have still got a persistent air leak and you end up referring on to surgeons. And we found that an airflow measure of over 150 mils per minute, which isn't huge, but it's enough to say that you're then five times more likely than a person with a lower air leak to have failed by day four or five, which is a time point when we start thinking about referral to surgery. So this is obviously very exploratory work, but I think there's something we could measure early in the patient's treatment pathway to say that you're likely to be someone who's going to resolve on their own. So let's just carry on treating as you are, either an ambulatory or, or conservative way, or you're actually someone who's been highlighted as someone who's high risk. So why are we going to wait till day four before we speak to a surgeon? Mm-hmm. I think this, this, the next step is to try and prove this prospectively and mm-hmm. see whether airflow management uh, airflow directed management can change outcomes but but I at the moment don't use that as a, as a criteria to refer people or not what I what I do do is I do attach people to the digital suction device because I think it gives a better reading than the intermittent bubbles through an underwater seal mm-hmm. because if that gets monitored every two hours or so as the observations are done you know what might be happening a few times during the day but what's the digital suction devices do is gives you a recording continuously and you can scroll back to say how long has that airflow been zero and uh, that allows me to have a better handle on when the air leak has stopped and when the lung is up and, and I think it gives you better decision making tools about when to remove the study but I think we're, we're a slight outlier in, in Oxford at the moment in using this and there's only a few st- centres that routinely use it but I think it's becoming more frequent. Absolutely. So uh, our discussion has mainly focused on patients with primary spontaneous pneumothorax. Now, uh, Simon, in, in your practice, is there any consideration to manage patients with a secondary spontaneous pneumothorax, um, either conservatively or in an ambulatory setting? Yeah, look, I think for trauma in particular, there's emerging recognition that many traumatic pneumothoraxes without an ongoing leak or uh, without concurrent hemothorax can do well without drainage. Um, I mean, as a retrieval physician, you know, I'll identify sometimes a pneumothorax by ultrasound roadside and transport even by helicopter without drainage um, if they're physiologically stable. That's a, a little bit controversial. I mean, I think the surgeons, some surgeons have um, embraced that concept of conservative management for small traumatic pneumothoraxes. Uh, for medical secondary pneumothoraxes, I, I guess COPD is something which is, I guess that's a fairly large component of the, of the medical secondary pneumothoraxes. One of the interesting findings in one of our earlier observational studies back in 2014, which I think we saw again during this trial, is that physiological compromise tends to be evident at presentation. And I do wonder whether we could, should consider a conservative approach to these cases as well. Um, and I'd have to ask why stick a foreign object in the pleural cavity, you know, with a risk of complications, unless we have to. Um, but the caveat there, I, I guess, it really needs careful study uh, as to which patient groups this is a safe option. But intuitively, I think we should be considering uh, doing this in medical secondaries or med- medical secondary pneumothoraxes. Rob, what about you? I know this is a, an evidence-free zone. Well, we, we have, we're starting to get a, a bit of evidence. So uh, at the same time we were doing the primary pneumothorax trial in the UK, the team in Bristol were running a trial called the HiSpec study, essentially trying to manage secondaries as outpatients in an ambulatory fashion as well. This proved slightly trickier. Um, 
they presented some of their data at the BTS guideline, uh, the BTS meeting last December. And the highlights were really they found there was certainly an, a risk of ongoing air leak. The risk of complications was higher in this group than it compared to the primaries. And certainly using the device that we used, they found that there were more complications in these secondary groups. Now, I think we know that someone with particularly the COPD group with severe bullous lung disease, the chance of there being a significant air leak is higher. They also sometimes have prolonged air leak. And if you have a pneumothorax for long enough, you often get a bit of eosinophilic pleural fluid there, which can get quite sticky and can gunk up a small bore drain. So I think in my practice, I I wouldn't be using one of the small ambulatory devices, What I, certainly not in the first instance. I would be looking to see how stable the patient was. And again, coming back to Simon's point about the physiology, I think if you've got someone who's severely compromised in that they can't cope with having one lung collapsed, I think conservative management in that patient group is tricky. I think a small bore drain is reasonable. And if that re-expands re- the lung or resolves their compromise and they're well enough and up and about on the ward if after a period of 24 hours of observation for example you could put a some form of Heimlich valve on the end of it mm-hmm. and say, actually if you're still fit enough we could get you home while your lung re-expands and this resolves in a similar way to being followed up as an ambulatory management for the primary pneumothorax but I think that's certainly a case of selecting the right patient at the right time so I think if someone with a Chester in, it's been in for 24 hours, even with a secondary who's stable enough, you could then consider sending them home after day one or two. Perfect. Thank you so much. So this has been a truly fantastic discussion and congratulations to both of you for publishing two great practice changing trials. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will enjoy uh, this as much as I've enjoyed hosting it. Uh, do you guys have any closing comments? Uh, Simon, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, look, I think they're they're nicely complementary studies and I think there's a chance now for us to have some good shared clinical decision making with patients, uh, particularly with uncomplicated pneumothoraxes. And I'm pretty comfortable that most patients I see in ED practice can be managed without intervention. Um, just, I suppose, watchful waiting. But um, for those, you know, a relatively small number that we see that do require interventional management, I think the ambulatory device is a great alternative to our you know, standard approach of, uh, of inpatient care. So it'd be nice to see a move on to some larger multi-centre observational studies because I, I always do worry a little bit, a little bit about real-life practice uh, as opposed to that idealised study environment where we're you know, carefully following up all of our patients. And the other thing is that the safety of that approach, I, I think people sometimes forget that you know, even our studies that are quite large uh, and... Um, you know, show fairly good outcomes. Um, safety events are pretty rare, so you need to have large studies and multi-centre studies with you taking into account variations in practice to see how safe various approaches are. So, I'd like to see some follow-on real-life studies. Um, I think going going forward. Thank you. And Rob, what about you? Yes, thanks very much. I I think that the days of routinely admitting all patients with primary pneumothorax are over. I think conservative management has its place in minimally symptomatic patients who don't require any treatments, resolution for up to, up to eight weeks. But in those patients who are symptomatic that you're seeing in, in ED, I think ambulatory management should be the first choice and certainly offering the patient that option. We know that it works in reducing hospital stay, but you do need to be aware that a small proportion will need further treatment and they will need close follow-up. Um, and I think that 
level of follow-up needs to be defined slightly over the next few years. And I think I agree that further observational studies in, in how we then follow the patients up and how quickly we need to see them, I think, can be defined later. But generally, I think this is an exciting time for pneumothorax. Lots of new research out there, but still lots more questions to answer, as you, as you would have seen. So thanks very much for the invitation. Thank you so much. And thank you both of you again for your time. With that, we conclude an exciting episode here on the AABIP podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed hosting it. Until next time, take care.